I can't believe a new year is almost here. And I don't know about you, but I'm still not certain about what my New Year's resolutions are going to be. And I know I don't have a whole lot of time left for Karen to give me my list. So I'm pretty sure I'll get that soon, and then I will resolve to be more observant to her, to not assume that the the bin that I put my dirty clothes into magically comes out folded and cleaned. Uh, The dishes can go in the dishwasher instead of the sink just as easily, and things like that, I'm sure might be on the list. Uh, If I were to give you a New Year's resolution, what would it be? Well, every pastor probably would have the same resolution. Every pastor, I think, in the United States, unless they're super popular, which I'm not, they would wish one thing for you to resolve in 2024. What does every pastor want from his church? Look at this beautiful front row. All this extra seat and space. Lots of leg room. How much do you pay for this on the airlines? This is expensive, folks. We sell these in the pageant for a lot of money. And today, it's free. It's free. And you guys are in college, and we told you to sit in the front, and look at you. Look at you. And I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. It's, it's Christmas break, Pastor Scudder. It's Christmas break. And so... We'll see what your grades are when we, when we get done. But their grades are going to be excellent, I think. But then look at the next row is empty. I'm just kidding. Stay there. I, I, I'm half joking. I'm half joking. So it looks like what we did over here is we just didn't put a, a front row. So now you guys are in the front row, but it doesn't feel like it, right? But then look over here. My mom is sitting in the front row. But again, I, have, I tell her to do that. So... Every pastor's pet peeve, but it's okay. Seriously, here, here's what uh, one family told me of why they sit in the front. There aren't any distractions when you sit in the front row. That's just for free. No extra charge. I feel better. I feel better. <laughs> there is actually one thing I would recommend that you do that will really help you um, have a really good uh, next year. And it's really simple. Tonight, if you're able to stay up to 11.59. Now, in our family, we used to tell the kids it was midnight at 9.59. And so they came in banging the pots and blowing the things and marching into the room and like, Happy New Year! Let's go to bed. And it was 10 o'clock. It was great. It was great. And uh, I think this year they're not going to fall for it because they're in their 30s, but it's worked pretty well up to now. Um, Okay, so here's what you do. When it's 11.59 on New Year's Eve, get up off the couch, okay? And as they start to count down, okay, 10, 9, simply do this. Raise your left leg. Now, if you can... Stand on one leg for more up to 10 seconds. Once they get to zero, you've started the new year on the right foot. Okay? So that to me, I, I think that's really good advice for everybody. So try that tonight and start the year on the right foot. 
What is God's advice for starting the year on the right foot in all seriousness? If we were to open up his holy word and here at this church, and I have for my whole life believed, and we always teach this, that this is God's word. These aren't, this isn't just a collection of books that humans wrote. There is an incredible flow. Even though many different people penned these words, they were all God-breathed, God-inspired. So we open this, and we can actually say, thus saith the Lord. Okay, and that's a wonderful thing. Because without this, we have nothing. We, we don't know for sure what's right, what's wrong. How should we live? How should we treat people? How should we behave? How can we get to heaven? Without this, we wouldn't know. But we have what God has clearly said. And then the older I get, the more I trust this, because the more I study it, the more I uh, do in-grace specials on the accuracy of this book, prophetically, scientifically. And it is just a beautiful collection of words that has a, a singular theme all through the centuries and that is the, some people have called it the scarlet thread, the story of redemption all through the Bible. Now, if we were to open up the Bible and try to find three things, we're going to just make it real simple today, three things that God wants us to pay attention to in this coming year, what would those three things be? And since you asked, I'm going to spend a few minutes to tell you what God has persuaded me to share with you today. And it's going to be in Micah. Micah is what is called a minor prophet. It is a small book. It is a book that was predicting things that were going to happen to Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom, at the same time that Assyria was coming into the northern kingdom and Eventually, Judah would also be taken captive by the Babylonians. And this was a really, really horrible time in Israel. They had good kings. They had bad kings. They just had this oscillation going. And he lived, Micah lived, the same time as Isaiah. They were contemporaries. And Micah lived in the outskirts. He was, he was in the country, closer actually to Gath, which was a Philistine city, Actually, not very far from Gaza, which we know in the news these days. And let's continue to pray for Israel. Let's continue to pray for the hostages. Let's not forget them. But Micah had a heart, or God gave him a heart, and probably he was surrounded by the people that were downtrodden. And so when we read in Micah 6 these words, Hear ye, Shema. Hear ye what the Lord saith, arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, Shema, hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. Controversy. God has a controversy with his people. He will plead with Israel. Who, who, who is this referring to in Micah, it's referring to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. They were still, at that moment, the plan of God for the day. They will be, again, the plan of God for the day. 
Today, we're not Jew or Gentile. We're not male or female. We're not bond or free for we're all one in Christ Jesus. We're in the church age. But in the, what we call the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel was the light. They were going to bring the Messiah. They were going to bring and were bringing the scriptures. And they are still God's earthly people today. That's why we need to be pro-Jew and pro-Israel, the world's only Jewish country. Now, what is this talking about? First of all, let me say this. Some people teach that the church has replaced Israel. Let me be very clear. That is not a biblical position. Now, again, I believe for a time, Israel is on the back burner. The church is now on the front burner. We are to be the light to the world, the light to the nations, to bring the gospel to the world. But we have not replaced Israel, for God has promised Israel certain promises forever. And they're unconditional promises. So if God unconditionally promised Israel a land and uh, to be a people and to sit on David's throne forever, then that is what's going to happen. And we better be glad about that because God keeps his promises. Why are we glad? Because he's promised us a lot. And if he's promised us a lot, and we can be confident that he'll keep his promises because he will keep his promises to also the Jewish people. So what is this scenario? Why is Micah saying, hear, O mountains, and, and, and the strong foundations of the earth? Uh, you know, what's this controversy? Well, let me just set this up. Micah is from God telling the nation of Israel to step into God's courtroom. God has a controversy with his people. Israel, and let me give you Isaiah's words. Again, Isaiah contemporary of Micah. Look at Isaiah 1 in verse 6. Isaiah describes the nation of Israel at this time like this. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. We're talking about a people from head to toe that has serious issues, serious problems. They had an outward form of religion, but it was only that. It was only this attempt to, on the surface, show ourselves righteous or religious or holy, but internally, the way we treat people, the way we act, we are absolutely corrupt from head to toe. Okay, and then it talks about wounds and bruises and putrefying sores and, and just the, the imagery that here Isaiah is talking about, uh, they have not been closed. That's, I, I almost can't say that. I can't think about such a gross thing as a wound that's putrefied and, and open and all of that. Neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. So this is the real situation. And that's, I tell you, there's one thing that I, I hope that we want more than anything. And that is to know what God really thinks of us now, today. Not just corporately as a, a body of believers, but individually. How does God think about us? Do we have this outward appearance of religious activity, but we are not 
what God desires? Well, we're going to find out what God wants from us today. And his prognosis to the people of Israel at this time, although they were acting like they were fine, they were indeed very, very sick. And I don't know about you, but if you really had a serious disease or illness, would you want the doctor just to fudge the blood test or the x-ray to make you feel better? Or would you want him to really address the problem? Well, God is going to go right to the problem. He knows the heart and the heart was the problem with Israel. Now, this is a courtroom. And why do I say that? Because in the first few, uh, next few verses, we're going to see God laying out his side of the equation. This is God's case. And then he leaves it for the defendant to answer. And that's what we're going to see here today. And at the end of the defendant's answer, God gives three simple things that he wants. It's not the things you would expect, but it's, it's, it's exactly what God wants. And I think we can, although we're not Israel, we're the church, I think we can apply these same principles today because God is the same. And God still wants from people to act the same way that he desired Israel to act. Let's talk about, though, before we go to that throne room, throne room in Micah, let's go to two throne, throne scenes that you will be at one of them. We're going to go to look in Scripture at two judgment scenes. Everyone here, everyone listening and watching, you will be at one of these two throne rooms, these two judgment scenes. One is called the Great White Throne Judgment. The other is called the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ. Let's talk about the great white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, this is very near the end of the Bible, very near the end of time as we know it. It says in verse 11 of Revelation 20, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose faith the earth, face the earth and heaven hath fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Who are these people? Who are these dead? That also means that if you die physically, you're not dead. Your spirit, your soul continues forever. And then you will have a body that will be designed for whatever eternity you will be experiencing. And unfortunately, these are people that have rejected God's offer of salvation, God's love, God's plan. They've rejected him outright. And they're standing before God. The books are open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. Now, I'm going to skip to verse 15 and tell you that whoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we have books open, we have the book of life open. If your name is not in the book of life, you will be at the great white throne judgment, which is not good. How do you know if you're at the great white throne judgment or the next one we're going to talk about? It all has to do with what you do about Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's really simple. So What are these books? Well, the books are opened according to their works. Uh, And again, I believe this is 
everyone at the great white throne judgment will be facing an eternal lake of fire. But I believe, and it will be all be horrible, darkness, fire, hell, but there will be also degrees of hell because I think all of us agree that Hamas and Hitler and others deserve deep, the deepest parts of that awful place. And then it says, the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, the temporary Hades torment. And they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The first death, if you face the first death, if you're saved, you won't face the second death. If you've had two births, you've had the physical birth and a spiritual rebirth, you will only face possibly one death. And I say that possibly because there's a doctrine in the Bible that we call the rapture, the the gathering up of the believers right before the end times. So the second death, though, if you've only had one birth, you haven't had a, a rebirth, a spiritual birth, as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about in John 3, you will face a second death, which is here at the great white throne judgment. It's horrible. But again, that is a judgment reserved for those that reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus. Now, there's another judgment, another literal courtroom that you will have to be at. If it's not the great white throne judgment, then you will be at a judgment called the Bema seat or the judgment seat. And if you know anything about the Greco-Roman world, they had to award the athletes uh, for their achievements. They had a, a, a judge sitting on the Bema seat and he would award those for their achievements in life. And in in scripture, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bible says we must all, we mean meaning believers, Christians, born again people, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This doesn't determine heaven or hell, just like the great white throne judgment doesn't determine heaven or hell. It determines rewards in heaven. That every man may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So if you've not done the things that you should have done as a believer, you will not receive the rewards you could have received. And I also believe positions. I think eternally we will have positions. This is like a dress rehearsal. Uh, This life, it's a short life. Even if you live to 70, 80, 90, 100, look at that compared to eternity. You can't even see the speck of time that we're in. The Bible says life is a vapor. Let's remember that as we think of New Year's resolutions, what does God want for me in the next year? Think about that. The brevity of life. And what should I be living this life for? I'll tell you this. You should be living this life as an audition for the next life. Not to gain entrance in, but to have a, a position, maybe authority, uh, rewards for certain. And um, I, I think we all should realize that. We're going to be at one of these two courtroom scenes in reality. Now, that was a little side channel. We're going to get back onto the mainstream of today. But I think the three things that God tells Israel through Micah are three things that will help us at the Bema seat. And I hope all of you will be at the Bema seat, not the great white throne judgment. If We disappear before I get to the gospel. It's pretty simple. Jesus is God who died on the cross for our sins, 
and rose again, if you'll trust in him, you'll be saved. If you want to make sure you're not at the great white throne judgment, just take care of that right now. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I right now put my faith in Jesus alone, not religion, but Jesus. Not me, but Jesus. I believe in him totally for my salvation. And if you've, do, if you've done that, it's not your words or your prayer that saves you. It's your faith. It's your faith that saves you, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, then you will not be at the great white throne judgment. You won't face the second death. You won't go to hell. Amen? But then you will be at another judgment, not for heaven or hell, but for rewards in heaven. Okay, so now back to Micah's courtroom. God is having Micah share with Israel. First, how good God has been to them. Now, obviously, you all know the story of Israel, right? He first calls Abraham. Abraham comes into a strange land. Now, we call it Israel today, but the Canaanites live there. And God said to them as they were just living in tents that one day this will be your nation. This will be your place and this will be your place forever. And then he had a son named Isaac that the promise passed to. And then he had a son named Jacob that 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 promise passed through. And Jacob's name was also Israel, Israel. And so we have here the promise through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of a land forever. They went down to Egypt because of a famine. God had provided miraculously through Joseph uh, that they would be saved in Egypt. Uh, They wouldn't starve up in Canaan, but they would grow to be this huge nation. You know the story of the Exodus where they were freed finally by uh, Pharaoh through the plagues. They crossed through the Red Sea. They were born as a nation. They spent more time in the wilderness than they needed to, but eventually they crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land and eventually conquered most of it. They lived there. They had their ups and downs. And here Micah is at this time in that history as the different uh, divided kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah in the south, kingdom of Israel in the north, they had divided, the tribes had divided. Um, but the northern kingdoms were being taken captive by Assyria. The southern kingdoms had a little bit longer because they had a few more good kings that kept them on the right track. Eventually, they would go into captivity. This is the time frame. And remember, I, Isaiah had said, you are, you are corrupt from head to toe, okay? But they really thought they were fine. They really thought they were fine. So now this is what God lays out. This is his side of the controversy, Micah 6.3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? That's a good question. What has God done? What has God done? This is important to know what God has done and to remember what God has done. In the book of Deuteronomy, the word remember is used over 14 times. Why? Because we forget quickly. What God has done. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. (laughs) Isn't that gracious of God? Lay it out there. Why are you rejecting me? Why are you going after false gods? Why are you marrying women that are, are part of false religion? Why are you, why aren't you respecting the way that I've asked you to live? Why are you uh, not treating the poor properly? Why are you uh, uh, cheating in business? Why are you doing these things? Is, uh, here's what I have done, God says. For I, verse 4, brought thee up out of Egypt. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot. 
He brought them up out of Egypt. He redeemed the out of the house of servants. They were servants. They were slaves. That would be enough to say, wow, God has done so much for me. Now, how can we parallel with this with the Christian life? Well, we were slaves in sin. Jesus paid for our sin. If, if we put our trust in him, we're free. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer, we are no longer under that power anymore. Now, we can put ourselves back under that. We can live life slaves, but we're not slaves anymore. He's freed us. We've gone through the Red Sea. The, the greater miracle wasn't that he parted millions of tons of salt water and they walked across dry ground. The, the greater miracle is that he saved us from our sin. And, and we were reborn. And, and, and uh, the water of the Spirit of God, we are, we are birthed in, in newness of life. We now have the new nature. Now we have the Spirit nature. Now if we yield to the Spirit, we can serve the Lord. We're free. We're no longer slaves to sin. So God did that for Israel. He's laying out all that he did. And by the way, was Israel always appreciative? Was Israel always praising him? Was Israel always doing the right thing? No. To my Jewish friends, Mount Sinai, when the law was given, and you celebrate that, and you should, the law is good. You were breaking the law as God was writing it. And I'm not condemning the Jews. I'm condemning all of us because we all sin. We've all sinned. But now, uh, because we couldn't keep the law, God kept the law for us through Jesus, the son of the triune God, and paid for our sins. And if you'll receive him, you'll be saved. And you will no longer be in the house of servants. And then God said, I sent... Before the Moses and Aaron and Miriam, God provided people to guide them and to help them. Oh, my people. Micah 6, 5. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. Now, if you know your Bible, you remember that as they were about to go into the promised land, Balak wanted to bring a seer, Balaam, to predict curses upon Israel. Remember the story of the donkey and the donkey spoke? The donkey had more sense than Balaam. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal. So instead of, and Israel had nothing to do with this. God in his mercy, instead of curses coming out of his mouth, God brought blessings out of his mouth. Not because Israel was always doing right, because God is good. And then God brought them through the Jordan River, as it references here from Shittim, which is up in what's called Jordan today. It's the land of Moab, to Gilgal, which is the first encampment that they had on the promised land on the western side of the Jordan River. So we have here today, even this river is very controversial, right? The, the river called Jordan is controversial because people will say the Palestinians cry for freedom is from the river to the sea. That's this Jordan River to the Mediterranean. That means that Palestinians or whoever cry that are saying Israel shouldn't exist. That's a horrible thing to say. That's basically what every anti-Semite has said. That's what Hitler would have said. 
We cannot say things like that. So they cross the Jordan River that ye may know the righteousness, the rightness, the goodness of the Lord. So God lays out to the people who were from head to toe putrid. They thought they were fine, but they were really, really sick. God lays it out. Here's what I've done. Here's even in the midst of your complaining and your disobedience. Here's what I did for you. Now it's time for Israel to respond. Let me, before we get into the response of Israel, let me ask you this. How much has God done for us? As New Testament believers, how much has God done for us? I can give you a list of at least 30, probably 40 things that are true of every person that has put their trust in Jesus Christ. Let me give you 10 today. 10. We're going to go through these quickly. Are you all ready to go through this fast? Here we go. Number one, the Bible says we've been bought with a price. And it says that in 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Ye are bought with a price. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a blessing? Because we are penniless. We don't have anything. And God paid the price for us so that we can have hope and we can have redemption and, and we can walk with him and we can learn how to be the dad God wants us to be and, and, and the wife God wants you to be and, and all of these things. He's bought us with a price. What was the price? The price was the death, the blood of God. You are God's child, number two. You are God's child, John 1.12 says, that you have the power to become the sons of God if you've received him. If you've believed in him, if you've believed in Jesus, you are a child of God. That's incredible. Has God done enough for you? If he just saved you, if he just bought you with a price, isn't that enough? If you were in God's courtroom today and he lays out all that he's done for you, and if he just said, I saved you with my precious son's blood, wouldn't that be enough for us to just say, you're right, I'm wrong. Number three, you're Christ's friend. It says in John 15, 15, I have called you friends. The Bible says that you're a saint, not the football team, not a certain person that had a certain miracle happen and the church declared them a saint. You are called a saint in the Bible. Every believer is a saint. It says in Ephesians 1.1, to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and it repeats this many times about Christians. You're saints. Why? Because you have been cleansed by Jesus, and now you have his righteousness, and in that sense, you're a saint. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.27 says that we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. I mean, just think of all the things that God has done for us. Let's know that. Let's not forget that. Let's remember that. Number six, that you're free from condemnation. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We no longer are under condemnation. We're a citizen of heaven. Number seven. In Philippians 3.20, the word is conversation. That is Old English for citizenship. 
Our citizenship is where? In heaven. You pull out your passport. You're in the passport line. The guy's there ready to stamp your passport. And you flip it open. And it's not the United States. It's heaven. That's your passport. We're just sojourning here. That's how saved you are. Number eight, you're free from any charges against you. If the devil were to accuse you before God, if you've put your trust in Christ, there is no one that can condemn you. Romans 8. Romans 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 33. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? You don't have any charges anymore against you. Number nine, you have access to God through the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Ephesians 2.18. You have both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. We can go directly to God. You don't need a priest or a pastor to mediate for you. You don't have to go into a box. You can just close your eyes or don't even have to close your eyes. You can just talk to God at any time because of the mediator. You have access through the Spirit of God, to the throne of God, anytime you want to. And then 10 of a short list, you will never be separated from God's love. I tell you, just these things, aren't they enough? Aren't they enough to know and remember and get us, get us going for the, for the new year? Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's a whole long list, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, Nakedness, peril, sword, verse 38. I am persuaded, I love this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So folks, we have a lot, don't we? And that's, by the way, a short list of all the things that God has done. And promised us. Let's remember that. So God's side of the controversy is God is good. Even when we didn't do good, God did good. God blesses. God helps. God loves. Not to say he could ignore sin, because he can't. Sin hurts. Sin not just hurts us, but it hurts other people. So God asks Israel after Previously listing their failures, you are putrid from head to toe. And then God lists all the things that he's done for them. And then God stops talking after Micah 6, 5. So the next part of what you're going to read is Israel's response. And if you want to tie it in with today... Our response, after hearing our situation, after hearing all that God has done, what should our response be? What should Israel's response have been? It's pretty simple. Either stay silent because of shame or confess. You're right. I'm wrong. Tell me what to do. But instead, what does Israel do? Israel does what we do, folks. What do we do? We start bargaining with God. Okay, God, um, let's make a deal. I'm going to give you, Micah 6.6, 6, 
wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Okay, I'm just going to come and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one bow. Is one bow enough? Okay, one bow is not enough. How about 10 bows? Okay. Oh, well, maybe, maybe you want more than bowing. Okay, here's the negotiation then. Instead of just saying, I'm wrong, I'm going to say, okay, uh, how about I'm going to bring you some burnt offerings. I'm going to bring you a calf or a few calves of a year old. I'm going to give you a small sacrifice. Oh, you want more than that? Okay, okay. So we start to negotiate higher. This is what we do. Okay, um, how about a thousand rams? How about a thousand rams? Okay, you know, that's not, okay. Uh, uh, all right, I, I, I really don't want to do this. I really can't afford it, but I'm going to do it anyways. How about 10,000 rivers of oil? How about that, God? Oh, that's not enough? Okay, I'll throw in my firstborn. I'll throw in my child. Okay, it, it, it really is ridiculous when you start to read Israel's response, trying to buy off God. That's penance. That's not what God is looking for. He's not looking for penance. He desires your heart. He desires you. Okay, so here, if you want to boil down my whole sermon into a few words, and you say, yes, we do, and you could have done that 20 minutes ago, Pastor. Okay, Micah 6, 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good? So what we're about to read is really simple. God's truths are very simple. You don't have to be a PhD to understand them. As a matter of fact, if you're a PhD, you probably won't understand God's simple directions. Here's what is good. And, and what doth the Lord require of thee? Here it is. Three things. Number one, do justly. Do justly. What does that mean? Well, do justly is just do the right thing. Do the right thing. In commerce, in business, if you're a boss, treat your employees right. Don't berate them. Don't clap in their face. Don't mistreat them. Love them. Care for them. Treat them the way you want to be treated. That's doing it justly. If you're a husband, uh, do justly. Do what God wants you to do, how he's given you instructions on how to act towards your wife. If you're a, a neighbor, instead of getting in quarrels with them, find ways to, to bless and show your love to them. So there's all sorts of ways to do justly. But the bottom line is, do the right thing. Do the right thing. And how do we know what the right thing is? Put yourself in the other person's position. Whatever that is. And then all of a sudden we'll learn what the right thing is because it's the one thing that we would want them to do to us. So number one, do justly. Number two, love mercy. This is where we can get off track very easily. We can so quickly be only judgmental. And the problem with being only judgmental is that we forget to look at ourselves and we have glaring hypocrisy in our own lives. I, I tell people, we, we have to judge. We have to make decisions. We have to, to correct people, but we have to do it from a sense of a place of mercy. Why? Because that's what God did for us. We didn't deserve any of the mercy that God has given us. So we have, if God has given us mercy and we've received it, we have to be 
merciful. In other words, I would suggest this. It's really simple. Error on the side of mercy. Okay? Whenever you have a dealing with someone, error on the side of mercy. Show love, show compassion. Why? Because God did that for us. Number three, walk humbly. And it's not just walk humbly, uh, and, and that's something that you, you can do. You can walk humbly, but it says more than that. It says walk humbly with thy God. God doesn't want you just to walk humbly, and we need to think of ourselves properly. We don't want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. All we are is a pile of dirt. That's all we are. That's all we are. But with Christ, with him, we're more than conquerors. With Christ, uh, it's, it's everything, but it has to be him. So that being humble is important, but it's not just being humble. It's walking humbly with God. That's the answer right there. To get through the new year, the way God wants you to live is walk humbly before that God. These are three things that God wants you to know for the new year. Isn't that simple? And it was all right here in God's court room through the prophet Micah to the nation of Israel. Let me end with this. How can we be just if we are not first justified? How can we be justified? Romans 4. And this is really neat because in Romans 4, it talks about two Old Testament figures. If you were to read the first few verses, you're going to read about Abraham and how was he made right. That's what justified means. It was declared right or righteous. It wasn't because he was good. It wasn't because he obeyed God. It wasn't because he um, was willing to offer Isaac. The Bible says very clearly in Genesis and here in Romans 4 that he was justified by faith. That's exactly what the Bible tells us. This is how I can be made right by faith, not by works, not by religion, not by doing these laws or trying to keep this holiday, holy day, Sabbath, whatever. How can I be saved? And then another example is David. And look at Romans 4, 5. It says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him. It's not about you working. It's about you believing on him. Who is that? That is Jesus that justified the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. That was Abraham. Then David, verse 6, also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness. Righteousness has to be imputed or transferred to us because we can't obtain it ourselves. Without works, right? So David, in Psalm 32, you can look this up later, Paul in Romans is quoting from Psalm 32 and David Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. How can we be justified? Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the predicted promised one, the Messiah, the Christ that came to die for our sins. And if you'll just believe in him, simply believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then once you are justified, then you can learn how to be just with people. You can learn how to do the right thing with people. That's what God wants. Now, how can we be merciful if we've not experienced God's mercy? 
How can we experience God's mercy? Well, initially, Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness. Do you see the theme here? Which we have done, but according to what? His mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. God's mercy, to experience God's mercy, is not by our works. It's not by what we do. It's not by our religion. It's not by our prayer or our penance. It's by putting our trust in the person of Jesus. And when we do, the Bible says that we're regenerated. We're, we're made alive. We're reborn. And then how can we walk in humility with God unless we've humbly accepted God's plan for salvation? In Luke 18, 17, one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible is Jesus talking about children and wanting to, to uh, bring the children to him so he can bless them. And he said to his disciples, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall no wise enter therein. What does that mean? That means children can't do it themselves, so they trust. We need to become as little children and say, I can't do it myself, so I trust. I trust that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And once you've experienced the humility of accepting salvation God's way, then we can walk humbly with God. Once we've accepted God's mercy, then we can learn how to be merciful. Once we have been justified by God his way, then we could do justly. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple, but yet it's hard. Why? Because the day-to-day is the challenge, isn't it? You probably are going to leave here like, okay, I got it. I can do this. This is really simple. It's like the man that prayed the New Year's prayer. Dear Lord, so far this year, I've done well. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But Lord, in a few minutes, I'll get out of bed. And then I'm going to need a lot more help. That is true. And I think if you have that prayer, God will help you to do justly, to be merciful, and to walk humbly with God. You've heard the gospel several times today. I encourage you, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, to do it right now. Say, Lord, I can't save myself, but I believe that Jesus died for me on a cross. I believe that he rose again the third day. Let my left hand represent all of us. We've all, my wallet represents sin. We've all sinned. We have sinned. Our sin separates us from God who is holy. My right hand is God who is holy. And our sin is separating us from him. And we can't get rid of this. No matter how hard we try, no matter how religious we try to be, you're still going to do something wrong. You're still not going to keep the law in every way. We have sin. And even if you could from today on do everything right, you still have the sin of yesterday. How are we going to get rid of this? Well, this is how much God loves you. He sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect, who knew no sin to be made sin for us. Did you see that? Jesus on the cross died to pay for our sins. He became sin. He rose again, and now he wants to save you. How can I be saved? Just believe in him. Put your hand of faith in his open hand of salvation. 
And once you have done that, the Bible says that you will not perish. You cannot get yourself out of God's hand. That's a wonderful truth. And then once you've received justification, you've accepted God's mercy, and you've humbled yourself to put your hand in his, then you're saved. And now you can learn how to be the man or woman, boy or girl that God wants you to be in the next year.